Welcome to Answering Religious Air. My name is Brian Garlock. Today is Wednesday, 12 p.m. Eastern Time. That means it is our live Bible Q&A. If you've got a Bible question, now you, is the time to send that question in. You can email us questions at answeringreligiousair.com. Again, that's questions at answeringreligiousair.com or private message us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash answeringreligiousair. If you want us to see your question, guaranteed, you've got to either email us or private message us on our Facebook page. Again, that's facebook.com slash answering religious error. We do go live on YouTube and Twitter, and then you can watch or rather listen to the show afterward on podcast audio only if you are inclined to do so, or if you're not able to catch us live. We do appreciate those who watch on the replay and send their questions in later, and those who send the questions in live. We do try to get to our uh, live viewers as they come in, and so we will do our very best to do that. Uh, but again, we go live every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time. So if we don't get to your question today, we will, Lord willing, next week. We also have the Daily Answer podcast with Mark Dunnigan. That is a podcast that airs every Monday through Friday at 5 a.m. Eastern time. And so if that is something that might interest you in the mornings while you are getting ready for work, it's about 15, 20 minutes of some great messages that will just encourage you, convict you. Uh, challenge you to be a better Christian, a better servant of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. And so I would encourage you to check out Monday through Friday, 5 a.m. Eastern Time, the Daily Answer Podcast with Mark Dunnigan. All right, gentlemen, it's good to see each and every one of you today. Looking forward to the questions that we have lined up already. We got Stephen, Terry, Brian, Nick, and Mark Dunnigan. Guys, y'all all right? Fantastic. That's good. Doing great, Brian. Doing, Doing great. great, Brian. Yes. All right. Uh, do want to remind our audience as well that if you would like to come on the show and talk to the panel, you can do so. You can do it uh, through audio only or video if you're brave enough. Uh, come on, ask your question, and we'll have you on the show. Uh, if you'll follow the instructions on the description for Facebook and YouTube, then you'll be able to get with our producer, and he will – uh, take your question and work with you to get you on the show. So we're looking forward to any of those who would like to join in. We've had a couple brave souls, but uh, most of the time they just email or private message us, which you can certainly do so. All right, let's have a word of prayer. And uh, Nick Greenman, let's, uh, let's start with you. Bow with me, please. Our Holy Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer this morning. You're a grateful Father for the opportunity to be able to meet together in this medium online and be able to reach so many people that we have no idea how far your word can go using the internet and we pray for your glory and for your word to go out and to be implanted into fertile soil and we pray father for the laborers to continue to water so that you will be eager and willing to give that increase thank you father for all that you have blessed us with. We pray, Father, for wisdom and understanding in your scriptures. And we pray for those who are seeking your kingdom that, that somebody and somewhere will be able to reach them soon and to share with them the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's through his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Appreciate that, uh, brother. All right, this is our live Bible Q&A. Email us questions at answeringreligiousair.com or private message us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash answeringreligiousair. Before we get our first question, it is meantime. All 
All right. I look forward to meantime, all the wonderful memes that are out there floating around on social media and those who send those memes in as well. This one is a preacher. Uh, you may be familiar with him. Uh, he's he's on uh, YouTube and such, but uh, he likes to scream. Uh, pretty, uh, pretty funny preacher, actually. But anyway, so the top, it says preachers. And underneath it, it says, because if you make a bunch of people, uh, that is the church there, think hateful, stupid things for reasons that are fictional. Uh, translation, the Bible uh, says nothing but hateful, stupid things. Then the government says you don't have to pay taxes. And so uh, we wanted to answer this meme because that is far from the truth. Uh, Brian Haynes, let's start with you here at the very bottom. Wait, wait a second here. Uh, don't have to pay taxes. Uh, have I been a sap all this time and been paying taxes? Uh, I need to look into this. Hey, there's a lot wrong here. The fact that anybody could take this seriously really reflects a lack of thought uh, about this. And uh, it really is something. For, uh, so so right off the top, <laughs> uh, every preacher here pays taxes. Uh, I, I, I certainly don't know a single preacher who doesn't pay taxes. But let's let's kind of go back to the idea that's a common thought today that people want to say uh, that preaching or, you know, the, the, the preaching of the gospel, Second Timothy chapter uh, chapter four, you know, being ready in season, out of season, rebuking, admonishing, that these things are hateful and stupid, um, both of which reflect a lack of understanding about the terms hateful and stupid. Um, the preaching of the gospel is meant to turn people from sin and the consequences of sin and the wages of sin. Uh, if, you know, it, it would be kind of like saying that having a drug intervention for somebody who's a drug addict is hateful and stupid. That's exactly what preaching the gospel is about. It's about trying to turn people away from something that is utterly self-destructive, easily the most self-destructive thing that there is. And it requires a lot of research and a lot of understanding, a lot of study. Uh, and it, of course, the case is that somebody who thinks hateful and stupid is certainly somebody who probably fits those two terms rather well. Now, that being said, I, yeah, I, I acknowledge there are a lot of false teachers out there and a lot of false preachers. And those false teachers and preachers might say things that, uh, that aren't the truth. And that is hateful. You know, when you don't speak the truth, you hate somebody. And they may be preaching things that they are untrained or untaught on. I always think of Peter's admonition in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he warns that some people who are both untrained and unstable twist the scriptures to their own destruction. So that point, too, would be one to consider that, yeah, there probably are some people out there who preach the gospel for profit, who uh, twist the truth, who are untrained and unstable. But ultimately, I think that anybody that would, uh, that would share this meme really is revealing something really unpleasant about themselves. Yeah, appreciate that. Uh, Mark, Dunnigan, go. Yeah, Brian makes a good point. Uh, just being south, there, preachers pay not only federal tax, state tax, but they pay the full percentage of your Social Security tax because uh, they're self-employed. And, and so for many people, who, for many people, your employer pays half of that Social Security tax for you. And but the preacher pays all of it, the full percentage. And and so not only that, but when you're self-employed, you pay estimated taxes. And what that means is that quarterly you write a, out a check to the federal and your state government and you see exactly what comes out of your paycheck. And so it's it just kind of a not only that, but if you're given if you're given like a house to live in next to the building, that's not free because you're taxed on that. 
and just kind of a heads up out there for people that don't know about that. But I like what Brian said. Timothy says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word in season and out of season. The true preacher, the true preacher loves you uh, because the true preacher is going to tell you if you're in sin. And, and I can see probably the meme here is written by someone who says that those that say homosexuality is a sin are hateful. And it is a sin. First Corinthians chapter 6, 9 and 10. It is a sin, along with adultery and fornication. But a person that tells you the truth about a destructive behavior loves you. They don't hate you. Not only that, but the person that wrote the meme, okay, and, and as Brian said, there are people out there that will compromise and will tell you what you want to hear. They will tickle your ears. And so if, if you find that in the world now there are people out there for money taking advantage of you, telling you what you want to hear, and fleecing you in the process, what, what I would tell people out there in the world is that you created those people. You asked for that. You didn't want the truth. Um, you wanted to have your ears tickled. Well, guess what? You got what you wanted. And so just kind of a heads up that uh, the writer of the meme here, often the world's desire to have their ears tickled brings you people that will lie to you for money. But the true preacher of God is going to teach the truth, whether they're paid or not. Those are my thoughts, Brian. All right. Uh, Terry Ben. I would like to know the meme writer's name because he set himself up as the judge of everything that's hateful and everything that is stupid. And he's also thinking that he knows what's fictional and what's factual. And uh, so I would like to know his name because that would really shed a lot of light on this. Uh, the hateful and the stupid thing has been really covered well, but he's saying that people preach things because uh, that's for reasons that are fictional, that there's no solid basis for it. Uh, I just don't think that he's read the Bible. He's not read it with a fair and open mind because right. when you search the scriptures, you find out what is so you don't find out what is fictional. You find out what is so. And Jesus said, uh, if you continue in my word, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus was not fictional. And Jesus is the foundation upon which the church uh, comes to exist and has existed these 2000 or so years. It's, it's because it's based in fact, not fiction. Those are my thoughts. Okay, great points there. Uh, Nick, we'll finish with you. Yeah, so a couple of things that's going through my mind regarding this meme. Uh, Maybe what they're trying to reference is the fact that churches are generally nonprofit status and they do get some tax breaks with that. But still, whenever they buy something, they're having to pay sales tax. Usually most churches probably don't uh, press that no sales tax on some things. But uh, sure, there are benefits uh, to being a nonprofit in the United States. And it's not just given to churches, but it's given to any nonprofit organization in the U.S. That's a that's a gift that the government gives. Um, and, and so. I don't see why we should complain about that. We, it's a government that is being generous. <laughs> you know, that's something to rejoice about being here in the United States that most governments probably don't do. Um, and the second thing is, um, just on a personal level, it's been well over a decade since I've ever had a tax refund uh, because I have to pay every single penny. And then if I had any, if I paid overpaid anything, 
then usually that gets uh, forwarded over to the next year. And so I'm always chasing my taxes. I never, I haven't had a tax refund in a long, long time. And so uh, there's a there's a lot of knowledge that needs to be gained for those who are not aware of how preachers pay their taxes. And that's one thing. Um, that's one thing that uh, I, I noticed with this meme. So, yeah. And Nick, I'm right there with you, man. It is, in fact, this is the first year, I think, if I can remember correctly, in my last 11 years of preaching that I'm getting a refund back. So I was really su surprised with that. But anyway, um, all right. Appreciate all those things. And uh, let's start with our first question, uh, which is we did not finish from last week. And uh, Stephen was answering this question and then we had to uh, come to an end. Uh, it says, why do people say oops, last uh well, what was that? What did that say? I didn't even, I didn't even hear. I didn't even see what that said. Let me, let me go ahead and read it. Pull it back up. Uh, last tax refund I got was set a dollar seventy five. That's hilarious. And, and Brendan, I think you owe me a dollar, so uh, that works. Well. <laughs> and you owe me seventy five cents. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, first question: Where were we? Uh, why do people say that the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace? Is the New Testament not the law of God? All right, Stephen, uh, pick up where you left off if you remember where you left off at. Go ahead. Yeah. So one of the things that I was uh, talking about last week when we left off was that grace is a reciprocal uh, relationship descriptor. So grace must flow both ways in order to maintain a relationship. And anytime grace is only flowing one way, that relationship cannot last in that state for very long. I will just say this at the outset. I don't have near enough time to cover all of this, but I would make some suggestions uh, to read about patronage and grace used in that context in the first century. Grace was a very common word used among citizens in the first century, and it had to do with relationships of patronage. That is uh, a benefactor, somebody who provided benefits, somebody who received the benefits. And it talks about, they talk about responsibilities on both ends of that relationship. Now, when you bring that into scriptures, you see the same things um, that, that they talked about in the first century are being used by the Apostle Paul and other writers in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28, it says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show, and it says gratitude, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Now that word gratitude there um, has within it the word grace. And in other places you see the word thanks. It is simply the word grace. Chorus would be the uh, Greek word there for grace. And you see the Latin word grace there in gratitude. Uh, gratia would be the Latin word for grace. You see that in gratitude. Maybe for us, it would be better if we translated it gracitude. And so that's what that's our responsibility when we've received a gift is that we return gratitude. Now, the question is, what does that gratitude look like? Well, of course, it does look like saying thank you, but there's a whole lot of uh, action involved as well. And in fact, sometimes we may hear a thank you, but we understand that maybe the gratitude really isn't there because of uh, the actions, the behavior. Now, here's the question. We bring this back to the, the question of, of the old law and the New Testament and uh, the old law is uh, Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace. Anytime anyone has ever had a relationship with God, 
the foundation of that relationship have been grace and faith. Always. From the very beginning, it has been grace and faith. Amen. The, the foundation of our relationship with God cannot be law because we are unable to establish, first of all, we're unable to establish a relationship with law. But second of all, that's really not the relationship we want. Right. Now, here's the question. What's, what most people think when they think in terms of law and grace is law says you have to do it, right? Here's the rule. You have to do it. Grace says you don't have to do it. And I think that is the complete misunderstanding uh, that is so often introduced into these conversations. And I think that can be illustrated if you turn over to Romans chapter 6 and verse 12. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, it, Paul says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lesson. Now, that sounds like an instruction. Sounds like a command. Don't do this. Don't let this happen. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness for God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Now, I think what most people think when they read you are not under law, but under grace is you are not under the difficult standard of law, but you're under the much easier and softer uh, relationship of grace. I don't think that's what Paul means. And I don't think that's what it means anywhere when we talk about a relationship with grace. Now, let me illustrate that. If, first of all, if you go on and continue reading, you see that the demands of grace are that you have become slaves of God, slaves of obedience to righteousness. And so the description of grace is not uh, a, a permissiveness in that relationship. Now, to illustrate that, we were just talking about the IRS. It, it, a good segue there. When you have a relationship with the IRS, what does that look like? I'll tell you what my relationship looks like with the IRS. I want to know what is the minimum amount of money that I can pay to the IRS so that they will leave me alone. And I want nothing else to do with them. I don't write them nice notes. I don't, I don't try to develop a relationship with the IRS agents. I simply want to know what's the smallest amount of money and effort I can give to you to have as little interaction with you as possible. In fact, in the end, I really don't want a relationship with the IRS. I want avoidance. And so that is a law relationship. Now, what about with my wife? What if I said to my wife, what is the, the minimal amount of conversation we can have that would be pleasing to you? Well, I don't think that that would develop into a very good relationship. In fact, what we have is a grace relationship, and I want to develop a relationship with my wife. Now, when it comes to that relationship, it is far more demanding than the relationship I have with the IRS. Yep. It, it requires more of my time, my thought processes. I am devoted to her in a way that I am not devoted to the IRS. And so it requires, it demands much more of me. Now, here's the question. Are there any rules, are there any laws that govern and guide my relationship with my wife? Absolutely. It's not free of rules, free of laws. But the question is, do I think in terms of, well, 
you know, I've got to go buy my wife flowers in order to, you know, it's like paying my, my IRS taxes. I've got to go make sure I write this minimal number of checks throughout the year to keep, keep that relationship, to keep from going into the doghouse or whatever. That would be a ruinous marriage. Or if I thought, well, you know, I can't commit adultery on my wife because after all, I mean, that's the rules. That's the law. If that's your thought process, you have a horrible marriage. And so you don't want a law marriage. You want a grace marriage. Which of those is more demanding? Well, the grace relationship is more demanding. But which of those is more valuable and desirable? Also the grace mm -hmm. relationship. And so I do want a grace relationship. So when people, when people uh, pit law and grace against each other, I think that what's happened with the Old Testament is that in, in many cases where, where Paul is, is making the contrast, what he is doing is making a contrast of people who misunderstood their relationship with God under the law and the foundations and the basis of their relationship under the law. And he doesn't want them to carry that relation, carry that misunderstanding into uh, their relationship with God through Christ, but rather their relationship through Christ. And this is in Romans chapter four. Their relationship through Christ is on the same foundations that it has always been when it comes to our relationship with God. It is a, a relationship of grace and faith. And the grace goes back and forth. And incidentally, so does the faith. That is, God is faithful to us, and we, in response, are faithful to him. And so both of those uh, have a reciprocal nature, whereas law, it's avoidance. Give me the minimal. I just want to do this. I think that characterizes the Jews, and it characterizes the nature, at least unfaithful Jews, characterizes the nature of their relationship with God. So well, I just think we need to do an overhaul uh, of what the way we think about grace and, and what gr grace demands of us and what our response ought to be. Amen to that. Amen. Uh, Mark, you said you had a comment, but if you contradict Stephen on anything, I might have to remove you from the show. But go ahead. Those are great observations. You know, Stephen, it was interesting. I was thinking of this and the parable of the un, of the uh, of the the the, the un the, the steward that was unwilling to forgive his his fellow servant in Matthew eighteen. You know, mm -hmm. I was thinking of that and. So, so many times people focus on that. And I think what they completely miss is the Lord forgives the, uh, the steward. And yet the steward goes out and doesn't act appropriately or rightly. And all of a sudden he's back in the doghouse again. I, I thought that was, I think a lot of people don't see that. They don't make that connection of here is grace, but there's also this expectation that comes with it of how you're supposed to live. I think of Titus chapter one, the grace of God has appeared, but it's, it instructs us to deny ungodliness and to live righteously. And then I can't help but thinking on this question, Hebrews two, one through three, is that the Hebrew writer does not say, okay, we're under this new covenant now, therefore things are rather lax. It's we're under this new covenant now with like greater privileges and blessings, therefore we have to pay even much closer attention to what we've heard. Hebrews yeah. chapter two, one through three. Those are just thoughts that I had, Brian, on this question. Yeah. We're great under, comment, Stephen. Yeah, we're under a greater obligation. Absolutely. All right, next question. Appreciate that question there. Next question. There we go. Uh, what does it mean to be baptized? Oh, oof. 
1 Corinthians 15. What does it mean to be baptized for the dead? This is a fun one. All right. Uh, who has the right answer on this? I'm going to call, call on you. <laughs> Terry, we'll start with you. We'll see if you have the right answer. Well, I've always had the right answer, but it's changed from time to time. <laughs> it was right when I thought it was right. Each time, okay. but it became wrong <laughs> later. <laughs> I think what he's saying here is in this context, he's saying uh, if the argument is that Jesus, uh, that there is no resurrection from the dead, then the argument must be then that Jesus was not raised from the dead. Now, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then you're still in your sins. Nothing is improved. Nothing is better. And I think then he, he follows through the logic. Um, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? And that could be, you got a dead Jesus here. Why are you being baptized for a dead man? Uh, if the dead do not rise at all, another possibility is that uh, dead people, people who have now gone on, they were they were hoping you would be baptized and they encouraged you, but you put it off. You didn't do it. And now later on, after they're dead, you're thinking, you know, I, I think I ought to take to heart uh, because it, when I die, I want to go to heaven. And I want to be with those who are faithful to God. And so you might be baptized, not only, of course, mainly for Jesus, but you want to be baptized for those who had, had appealed to you on the basis of there being a future resurrection. Now, why would you do that if there is no resurrection at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? It's not saying Baptist, that you can do this in behalf of a dead person, that is, in, in as a substitute for them. I'm going to be baptized because they weren't. They were not baptized, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, like the Mormons do, they, they kind of keep a record of who, who all they're baptized for. <laughs> they're baptized for dead people, uh, as if they can be, uh, that you can by proxy do something for somebody else and, and they benefit from it. That's not what this passage is talking about for sure. I think we can rule that out because every man is going to give an account of himself, what he has done in the body. Not get give an account for what somebody else didn't do for us in their body. It's going to be all on, based on what you do in your body. Now, did you in your body, uh, did you obey the gospel? Yes or no. If you didn't, you're going to give an account. You will not be saved on the basis of whether, you know, later on after you're dead, somebody is baptized on your behalf and that saves you. Uh, no, that that's not what the scriptures say. But uh, I think there is some merit to looking at the context of this is in the uh, on the question of whether or not there is an afterlife. There is a resurrection, a future. And should we be baptized uh, in view of that and in respect of those who have uh, been dead and who perhaps had uh, wanted our baptism? Uh, should we do that? And I think absolutely you should, uh, not just for them, but for your own, uh, your own peace of mind and your salvation is, in the, in, in, is at stake in all of this. Those are my thoughts. 
All right, Mark, did he have it right? Go ahead with your interpretation. You know, those, I think Terry makes a good point that when you look at the context here, especially verse 32, if there is no resurrection at the last day, then there is no afterlife. That just seems to be an argument that Paul is making here, it, particularly when you look at 32. You're like, hey, I've been sacrificing. I've been, I've been suffering, etc. Man, if there's nothing after this life, then you might as well just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. Mm -hmm. And so I think that really factors in the baptism. One would be, uh, what, what in the world are we being baptized into, some, into the name of a man who's dead? No resurrection, Jesus wasn't raised. You're baptized into the name of a dead man. Number two, though, what's the use of being baptized if there's no future life? I mean, hey, I'm baptized, got my sins forgiven. Yeah, you got no place to go. It, and those seem, that context really seems to be important here of baptism now just looks meaningless if there's nothing beyond this life. Those are my thoughts, Brian. Brian, go ahead. Yeah, um, you know, taking a different route on this, whenever I run up against a difficult passage like the one we're looking at, I like to employ the old Sherlock Holmes statement that if you eliminate the impossible, whatever's left must be the truth. And I think that's a good theological approach to difficult passages. So let's kind of say, uh, grab a passage like this. What do I know it's not saying? Um, I know Terry's already mentioned it, but we know that there are some people that practice the idea of saying, hey, my dead ancestor, I can be baptized in my body for their salvation. Well, we Mormon, could simply go, go ahead. the Mormon approach, the Mormon approach. Yeah. And I don't know of any denomination, other denominations might do it, but I know the Mormons do that. So I can look at the scriptures and I can say, well, wait a second. Baptism is the response of the conscience of a good, clear conscience. Uh, uh, first Peter chapter three says, or in Hebrews chapter 10, he talks about, it's the, you know, it's the heart being cleansed. So it doesn't take a lot of study to find out that baptism is an individual's response to having heard the gospel and they're, they're being pricked uh, in the heart and their response there. And it would simply, uh, it would be a really easy case to say, I eliminate, even if I'm not sure what it meant, I could eliminate what it doesn't mean. And I think at that point, I'm left with uh, not too many answers that make it a lot easier to understand. And I think it's just a good theological exercise for anybody. You're stuck in a difficult passage. Uh, figure out what it doesn't mean first, and then you lay up what it what it could mean after that, and you're going to be a lot better off. Yeah, make sure it doesn't contradict anything. Good point there, Stephen. Yeah, just to add on to what Brian's saying there, in in the garden when Jesus was uh, presented with uh, Psalm 92, um, here's a text, and here's an implied interpretation of that text from the devil: "Cast yourself down; God will bear you up on angels' wings." Uh, Jesus doesn't doesn't go into a, an elaborate explanation of what Psalm 92 actually means, which I'm sure he could have. But rather, he comes back with, but it is also said. And the but it is also said means that Satan's interpretation of Psalm 92 could not be correct because it contradicted this other scripture. So it is an appropriate exercise, as Brian points out, to simply go through and strip away what is not possible and see what possibilities are left what boundaries we're working with all right appreciate uh, the comments there guys and i hope that uh, that helps there um if you are tuning in live don't forget you can email us right now questions at answering we got another 20 minutes or so of questions to take in as well as you can private message us on our facebook page facebook.com slash answering religious error and if you'd like to join the show you can come on uh, live through audio only or video as well. We've had uh, one guy come on a couple of times. I'm not sure if his internet is messing up, but if you are watching and you're trying to get in, we're 
we're waiting for you. If, if it's an internet problem, I would encourage you to uh, perhaps maybe restart your computer or um, make sure you're connected to Wi-Fi because that can the uh, you can you can get on via just your mobile phone, uh, but it can affect the internet. So if you're not connected to Wi-Fi, make sure you are. And hopefully you can come on the show today. All right. Our next question that we have here, is it wrong to listen to religious music with instruments if it's not in church worship? And uh, so the the context of or that setting there is what they're asking for. Um, Nick, you've been quiet for a couple minutes. You want to take a stab at this? Sure. I'll uh, uh, voice some some thoughts I have on this uh, question here. Um so when it comes to uh, worship, when we gather together to worship on the first day of the week, when we sing together during Bible classes and, and gather at our homes to praise our God, uh, we need to respect the authority of the scriptures. And what we see throughout the scriptures is a consensus that we are to be singing um, and the instrument that we are to use. Because I've, I've heard the argument out of Ephesians 5.19, where it says make melody, that Greek word means to pluck the strings of an instrument. And, and I can't disagree with that. Uh, however, Paul gives us the instrument uh, that has the strings that we're supposed to be plucking in Ephesians 5, and that is the strings of our heart. And so we're to be plucking the strings of our heart, making melody in our hearts unto the Lord. And, and so when, when we are doing that, that is, uh, you know, we have, to, we have to respect the the authority. Now, when we get over into the uh, entertainment side of the question, um, when we listen to music, we need to be listening to wholesome music. And a lot of the music that's out there, uh, whether you're talking about country, rap, rock and roll, it's, it's a lot of filthy stuff. And we don't need to be listening to those things. Uh, and there's a lot of times that what we would call, quote unquote, and I'm using the term very loosely here, Christian music. There's a lot of good messages uh, that are in those uh, songs, uh, such as uh, Casting Crowns, uh, that song about adultery that was in the movie uh, Fireproof. Uh, that's a very powerful song to remind people, hey, be careful about what you're doing with your eyes and your hands. Uh, you know, a little bit of uh, temptation goes a long way when when you start chasing that path down and, and you'll find yourself getting burned. And so there's a there's a lot of good songs out there that are very positive uh, messages that are very entertaining at the same time. Uh, the, the, the challenge, though, is crossing that line from getting good messages versus praising. And, and that's where we have to begin to try to figure out where to make that distinction. And so uh, that's that kind of comes down to a personal decision, I think, in some regards. But we have to be wise about that and we have to be uh, sensible, too. And we want to respect the authority of God first and foremost. All right. Who else? Brian, you're nodding. You want it? Uh, no, I was nodding in agreement. Uh, uh, maybe maybe I'll just throw out one more thought. I, I agree with everything Nick said. Um, I think that uh, within the assembly, we're given the uh, we're told what the authority is and we're not to add to that. Nick covered that excellently. Um, and then outside of the assembly, you know, I always I always go to a fee, uh, Philippians 4, 8, you know, whatever's good, whatever's pure. You know, these are the things that we kind of concentrate on. Uh, so much music has a religious theme that if I were to say couldn't listen to any kind of religious music, probably wouldn't be able to listen to most music because, you know, so many songs, classical music otherwise has a religious theme. But the only the only caveat I might add to that is to say there's also a consideration for a stumbling block um, that there might be a circumstance where I'm with somebody, a friend who's uh, from a denominational background. He listens to this as though, you know, for the assembly for worship 
And, you know, that might be cause for me to abstain because it's a liberty to listen to that music. And I might have to forego that liberty uh, based on some degree of them having a stumbling block in that. Um, but beyond that, I, I absolutely agree with Nick on that. Terry. Well, I think about myself. I, I do I enjoy instrumental music. I do play it and enjoy it. I don't combine it with praise to God because I think uh, you have to do it by faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And what I see in the New Testament is that God designs worship and he wants, in fact, he demands that if you're going to worship me, you must do it in spirit and in truth. John chapter four, verse 21 through 24. So he designs what is acceptable to him. Now, if I say, well, I like it. Uh, and so I'm going to do it anyway. Then, then you just thrown that, that, that point away. You've just decided, well, I'm going to do what pleases me. Uh, so I don't do it because it pleases me. I try to do what, what I know pleases God. Now, in John uh, Romans chapter 14, Paul says, uh, now you, people can look at things from a different standpoint, and if they do, you've got to give them some leeway. But make sure that what you do, you do it by faith, because whatever you, you know, is not of faith is sin. That is, you've not only violated the, the conscience rule, the rule that guides your conscience and it says in your conscience oh i can't do this it'd be to me like saying well um you can pray and you can burn incense well if you do it uh, burn incense you're you're not getting that from spirit and in truth new testament instructions that gives us all that is true all that is authorized uh, somebody says well i like to burn incense when i pray well, you might like it yourself, but it's not something that you can say, this, I'm doing this because it pleases God. You're doing that because you think that it pleases you. It's not that you can do something individually that's different than worship in the church. Worship's still going to be worship, whether you do it at home or whether you do it in private. You still got to do it in spirit and in truth. And so if you can't do it by faith, then I'd say, well, don't do it at all because whatever is not of faith is sin. And so, I, yeah, I may, I may listen to something and it just be incidentally coming through, but it's not that I'm planning to worship with this. I'm not planning to make this my moment of worship with God. It just incidentally came over the air uh, and uh, that I had nothing to do with that aspect of it. But planning to do so might be a different question and you need to look at the question of, can I do this by faith? All right. Anyone else before we move on? All right. Next question. Uh, since Paul practiced certain Jewish traditions, may the ceremonial laws of the old Testament be practiced by Jewish Christians today? Man, that's a great question. Uh, Mark, we'll start with you. You know, as I look at this question, Brian, I don't know. I, I didn't catch, catch this the first time around, but can we rephrase the question? Paul practiced certain yeah. Jewish traditions. Okay, what do you mean by that? Because Paul goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath but to preach, but 
the Sabbath's not a Jewish tradition. It, it, that was a command. He will go, he will be, he will seek to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. But that's not a tradition. That was something commanded in the Old Testament. Um, he, he will have Timothy circumcised, not because it need, uh, because we're, need to do that to gain favor with God, but that could just be a big stumbling block between Timothy trying to preach to people who are of a Jewish background. So I don't know what the, I don't know about, well, what, what traditions did he keep? Because Jesus said in Matthew 15, nine, that the, the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees, that's what I would call true Jewish traditions, major worship vein, Matthew chapter 15, verse nine. I'm not sure also the ceremonial laws. I don't know if the law, does the Old Testament ever call them ceremonial laws or are they just laws? I, I don't like dividing necessarily the laws up into different categories. So when I look at this, I really don't like the question. I think I know what the person is trying to get at, but I, I, I think maybe we assume things about Paul See, the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I become all things to all men, including Gentiles. Boy, I, I don't know, maybe we have this, we see Paul like preaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. We see him trying to be in Pentecost, you know, but in Jerusalem by, I think, Pentecost. We see that incident in Acts chapter 21. And I don't know, are, are we just assuming that Paul keeps on living a certain life without factoring in first corinthians 9 of uh, paul saying hey you know when i'm among the gentiles i seek to be all things to all men maybe he's not keeping as many things as we think he's keeping i don't know maybe that's just my thought upon the question are we assuming some things there um because as far as i can see yeah the, 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 there are some aspects of the old testament that certainly paul is respecting in, in the sense of like I'm going to the synagogue. I'm going on the Sabbath, not to worship, but I'm going to preach to people. Okay, good. But I don't know, observing Jewish traditions and still observing Jewish traditions, I don't see that. But those are my thoughts. I'd like to hear, hear what the other men have to say. Stephen, go ahead. Yeah, so, um, you know, this is, this is an interesting question. Um, McGarvey, uh, incidentally, thinks Paul got it wrong. Uh, on this. I don't agree with that uh, in his commentary on Acts and the places where Paul um, goes along there uh, with um, Jewish uh, traditions slash commands. But here, here's what I would say. Um, it, if what we're talking about is can a Jew continue to um, remember the Passover? That is a historical event for the Jewish people. And so I, I think um, there is not a great deal of difference, though I know that I recognize that there's some, there's not a great deal of difference between a Jew um, remembering the Passover and an American remembering July 4th. You know, this is the, the foundation of their country. And so in a civil way, that continues to have uh, a great significance. As far as religiously, um, is it wrong to remember that God's the one who did deliver them? I think that would uh, compare very well to our Thanksgiving, uh, which is more generic, but still it, it was at least intended as a moment and a time for us to recognize God's blessings on the people of this country. So 
I think in those ways, those are still appropriate expressions and remembrances. I would say additionally, there are uh, customs of devotion under the law, vows and so forth. I don't think it's wrong for us to um, have times of specific devotion to God today. Maybe we don't go through all the same ceremonies, but there's nothing wrong with saying I'm going to, to um, you know, keep a time of specific devotion to God. And that may have fasting that goes along with it. There's nothing inappropriate about that. And so in all these ways of expressions of devotion and remembrance, I think there's an appropriateness. I think where we have to draw the line and where Paul draws the line is attaching the same significance as uh, some of these things had under the law, most especially sacrifices, which do not have the same significance. Um, circumcision, which does not have the same significance. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to circumcise, but it is wrong to circumcise um, as a required identifier of being God's people. It's pretty much an elective surgery at this point. And Paul viewed that personally as something to do as an expedient uh, in moments where it might help, for instance, Timothy to have a, to gain a better and uh, easier audience with the people to whom he was preaching. He makes that point in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he's talking about being all things to all men. He can relate to those traditions, but to, but to continue to say sacrifice is necessary, um, circumcision is necessary, that I think is very clearly where Paul would draw the line. So no, I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's wrong for me to, um, you know, uh, even sacrifice animals without the uh, same meaning attached. I do that on a lot of different weekends. I sacrifice a lot of cows and pigs on my grill, but but they don't. But it doesn't have any significance. It doesn't. It doesn't have the atoning aspect to it. And and Paul understands that. He understands that that atoning aspect that is found in Jesus Christ. And that those sacrifices have become mere shadows that point to this greater reality in Christ. Are those uh, burnt offerings? Are they a sweet, swelling, smelling aroma to your nose? Uh, they are both to God and men. Uh, Mark, did you have a follow up? Yeah, I. it just seems like, Brian, and I appreciate the question, but it just seems like that some of this question comes from, I think there are people now and then, Christians down there and says, you know, it would really be meaning, meaningful to go back and observe some of the Old Testament things like the Passover. It, it, it would kind of maybe jump start my faith a little bit. And I, I guess I would kind of warn about that. I, I don't see Paul thinking that, you know what, we got the Lord's Supper now and the church and the new covenant, but it'd sure be nice to go back and just kind of like give me a little boost in my faith to be able to do what's there in, uh, in that Old Testament time period um, I just find Paul saying, Hey, yeah, yeah, you, you go, you, you're still wanting to observe the Sabbath religiously. You're still wanting to, if you're still wanting to do circumcision religiously, etc., you fall in from grace. Uh, I think there's a line there that you got to be really careful with. Those are just my thoughts, Brian. I, I think we should appreciate the new covenant and the Lord's supper. And that is our Passover and move on. And, uh, that's just my own thoughts. All right, uh, we got a comment here from our last question on the instruments we want to uh, talk about. Uh, it says, I know some songs that are accompanied by instruments while writing them, which are perfectly inspired by Heavenly Father. Uh, would like some clarification, make sure that we're answering this correctly. But uh, are you saying that the 
words that you're that you're writing that are accompanied by the instruments, uh, that all of that is inspired, that the instruments are inspired by God. Uh, is that is that what you're getting at? Um, I think we want to try to answer that. If that's if that's what you mean, we want to talk about that for a moment. Brian, what you got for that? Yeah. Um, so, Lynn, thanks so much for the comment. And we're always glad to have comments in. Um, and we're not 100 percent sure of what your uh, point might be. But I am aware that there are some songs that were written uh, that were accompanied by instruments that were inspired by God. We call them the Psalms, uh, written under the old law, the law of Moses. Now, let's kind of make a comment that comes up a lot because people say, hey, wait a second. If the Psalms were written to be accompanied by music, then it must be okay. But let's think about what the old law was all about. It was all about carnal things, right? You had a physical temple and physical sacrifices a physical priesthood, physical Jerusalem, um, you know, all these things of a physical nature. And you had physical musical instruments uh, that were meant to accompany the worship of, of God. Now, here comes the new covenant. John chapter four, Jesus tells the woman at the well, hey, you know, it's not going to be Jerusalem. It's going to be something else. Um, the Bible in the New Testament tells us we come to a spiritual Jerusalem, a spiritual temple that is the church. Uh, we are a spiritual priesthood, and we offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. And among those spiritual sacrifices to God, Hebrews chapter 13 says, we're offering up the fruit of our lips that are praise to God. Uh, what is the most spiritual instrument that one can play? Nick said it excellently. Nick said, the heart is what Paul is saying in the New Testament. The heart is the spiritual instrument from which Jesus himself would tell us that the overflow of the heart comes forth. So the heart is the spiritual instrument with which we offer spiritual music. If we brought in those carnal things of the Old Testament, like uh, like the harps and such that the old law had permitted, uh, we would be obligated to bring in the entirety of the law. James will tell us that if we try to bring one part of the law, we have to bring in all the law. We'd have to bring back the physical sacrifices, the physical temple, the physical Jerusalem, things that are long gone and cannot be brought back, we would have to bring back. And we would, in fact, be in a circumstance uh, where we are so much worse off for it. I'm so grateful that we live in the new covenant. And under the new covenant, we can offer God spiritual sacrifices of music that is played on our hearts and that this is the thing that pleases God because God is spirit. He wants us to worship him spirit and in truth. Or another way to say that, he wants us to worship him spiritually. And the spiritual musical instrument, the New Testament tells us, is the heart. And that's what God desires. And not the harp. I just had to throw that one yeah. in. Yeah, I, I would. Let me let me add to that. I would go. Um, I would you know commend the questioner as well as others to go back and read, um, for instance, the dedication of the temple um, uh, of Solomon in First Kings chapter eight, as well as the accompanying passages in First Chronicles, and uh, notice all of the um, pomp and circumstance. It is it is uh, an overwhelming affair, and it's supposed to be. Um, there are singers set in place. There are um, there's an orchestra that accompanies those singers. But all of these things were very specifically set in place by David. Um, so it is not simply, hey, uh, some people, um, you know, these people know how to play instruments and these people, they want to show their devotion to God by playing the instrument. They're good. at No, they are assigned uh, by decree. Uh, through David to their roles and their positions in in making this sort of fanfare at the dedication of the temple, as well as other occasions of worship. 
And what I would suggest to you, first of all, is to notice that, and it's a pattern, especially in First Chronicles, it's a pattern uh, that it, it repeatedly over and over says, this is according to David, according to David, according to David. So unless you are able to point to some authority and say, I've been set up as an instrument player, according to David, then you really don't fit the descriptors or the authority of the Old Testament. But I would secondly just point to this, uh, as Brian has made mention, and I think Bob made a comment there on the public comments, that uh, the, the type and shadow here is really, it's, it's really beautiful. And it's one of the elements that I think we need to notice. Not only notice the fanfare surrounding the temple, but the temple itself. You're talking about a literal gold-plated building. Everything about it was supposed to inspire awe and grandeur and to, to point our thoughts towards God in that line of thinking. When we come into the New Testament, we do not worship in gold-plated buildings. We are the precious metals and stones of the building. Amen. We are the temple. And when we sing without instruments and with the heart being the instrument that we pluck, what God, I think, does in First Kings chapter 8 and throughout First Chronicles is show what it sounds like to him, which is a glorious orchestra. Because God's ears hear in a spiritual way. And he hears that music that is far greater than any orchestra could produce. Now, I know to our ears, sometimes it does not sound as pleasant. Our voices falter, but our hearts are not restricted in the same way that our voices are or that our uh, physical talents at playing instruments are. And so when you see uh, a, a song that is written with instruments, those instruments are pointing to something that is not lesser, but it is greater. When we come into the spiritual realities of the New Testament, we are not diminishing. God says the spiritual reality, that's the real deal. And it turns out that that orchestra back there, that was the shadow. And so we want to see that and appreciate that when we sing out with our hearts, we are now the priests. We're the ones who were given such great positions of honor exclusively in the Old Testament. Now it's all of us. We're all the priests and all of our voices and our hearts blend as we sing those things to God. Excellent thoughts, guys. Appreciate it so much. Uh, appreciate all the comments that are coming in, questions, and uh, and those who, who want to come on the show. We do appreciate that so much. All right. Any last-minute comments, guys? It is 11.55. We are a little over today. All right. Well, thank you for being on and taking time from your local work to answer these questions for all of the uh, questioners out there. And uh, if you have a Bible question that you would like for this panel to answer— well, we do go live every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time. And so we'd encourage you to check us out. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as uh, we have this show uploaded to podcast only. Uh, you can search for Answering Religious Air or search for The Daily Answer on all major podcast platforms, and you should be able to find this show. Uh, we also go live on Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern time, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time for a study of Ecclesiastes. 
and uh, they finished uh, chapter uh, 10 last night. And so we're looking forward to chapter 11 next week. And if you're following along with that, then please uh, go ahead and do some studying through chapter 11. Come prepared with your questions and we'll do our very best to get those questions answered. And I got a microphone open here. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, all right. So uh, that's the study of Ecclesiastes. Check that out every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern time on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, as well as on podcast after the show. Then on Mondays, you have Bob's Bible Basics. That's just a great little show where Bob deals with the basics of the Bible, something foundational. Uh, perhaps you're new to the scriptures. Uh, maybe you want to go back to the basics. It's been a while. You've been doing a lot of deep studying. Well, check out Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern on Facebook and YouTube for Bob's Bible Basics. The Daily Answer is Monday through Friday at 5 a.m. with Mark Dunnigan. He was on the show today and really appreciate all the messages that he puts out. That is The Daily Answer, Monday through Friday, 5 a.m. Eastern Time, podcast only. Just search for The Daily Answer. And then last but not least, a show for women by women is Older Women Likewise on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find them on Facebook, YouTube, which they go live on, and then there's a podcast, Old Women Likewise. You can search for that on all major podcast platforms. That's all the time we have for today. Appreciate you tuning in, sending in those questions, sharing this video, and all the support that you uh, give over at Answering Religious Air. Have a great day.